As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So Tracy, I think we've been talking about it a lot on recent episodes, but We've had most of our uh, episodes this year, they've kind of been gloomy or negative, uh, just sort of, we started the year like on a real, uh, just sort of a down vibe, wouldn't you say? Maybe we're just capturing the zeitgeist? I don't know. Maybe, yeah, it could just be the sort of overall mood, but I think today is going to be a break for that. I think not only is today's uh, episode hopefully not going to be depressing, but actually might be sort of very positive and uplifting and maybe even kind of heartwarming. Joe, let me tell you, I could use both um, some heartwarming and some cheering up. So uh, what are we talking about? So we're going to be talking to a fund manager, which I guess is not often uh, what you think of when (laughs) you think of heartwarming or uplifting. But he's a uh, really interesting writer, a really interesting thinker, and he's a writer and one of the things that he does is he um, teaches his kids about uh, finance and teaches his kids about banking and interest rates and sort of complicated questions. Um, and he writes about these from time to time, these lessons that he teaches his, uh, his kids. I think anything with kids is sort of, you know, heartwarming. Well, I was going to say, does that mean we're going to get a bunch of really cute stories about how kids spend their allowance and that sort of thing? Because I'd be up for that. I think that's basically going to be it. We're going to have an episode uh, of cute stories about kids spending their allowance money, more or less. But it's going to tell us something important about finance and money as well, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think like most parents, uh, you know, a lot or a lot of parents might give their kids some sort of allowance, maybe a few dollars a week for taking out the trash or making their bed or anything. But of course, when a fund manager does it, especially one who's very into the theoretical constructs of the financial system, uh, they make it a little more interesting than just uh, you know a few dollars a week. They actually try to teach something profound and not just teach something, but potentially learn something through the process about how people think about money. All right. So don't keep us in suspense. Um, who is it? All right. Today, we are going to be talking to Toby Nangle. He is the global co-head of asset allocation at Columbia Threadneedle Asset Management, and we have him on the line. So uh, let's bring him in. (music) 
Toby, thank you very much for uh, coming in today. Well, thanks very much for having me, Joe and Tracy. It's great to be here. So, first of all, who are you? Who are you? How many <laughs> kids do you have? What do you do? And how many kids do you have? And why do you uh, why do you like to use spending money and allowances as a way of uh, sort of exploring the financial system? Sure. Okay. I've got three kids who are four, seven, and nine years old, and uh, that's a lot of kids. Um, and I'm a fund manager, so I, I, part of my day job is to think about how money works and and uh, and, and that sort of thing. And actually, to be honest, you know, I spent probably a lot of my career, as do most fund managers, not really thinking very much about money and just sort of taking it for granted. But uh, probably over the past ten years, uh, I've been thinking more about money and asking lots of stupid questions. Uh, and suddenly, I've got this captive audience to ask stupid questions to in the form of my kids. So why wouldn't I use them? <laughs> I love that. Now, as you say, most fund managers probably don't spend much time thinking about what money is or how the financial system really works. I talk we talk to fund managers all the time, and they talk about this or that company or this or that uh, you know commodity. Before we even get to the uh, you know the lessons you teach your kids, why do you think this is an interesting avenue to explore? Um, well, I think that in the era of heterodox monetary policy, then you can have all sorts of things which sound quite scary uh, or weird or wacky, which aren't actually really scary or weird and wacky once you think about money a bit. So because there can be something like helicopter money coming, or when quantitative easing was first uh, was first thought of, there are a lot of like broken notes out there about how Weimar levels of hyperinflation were going to come back because it was money printing, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to kind of start to think, think about, can this inter- you know, is this good advice or can it interfere with good uh, decisions? So I think it was become incumbent upon everyone to think a little bit more about it. And there's this Chinese proverb, which a friend of mine uh, let me in on, which is, uh, a fish is the last to know water. And I think that's a lot of, that, that's pretty true in the case of finance folks and, and money. We're surrounded by it. We think of it as something which is solid, but it's not. It's a social construct. It's something that we invent in, in different ways to do different things with. So, Toby, on that note, when you have um, your four-year-old come up to you and ask you, what is money? What exactly do you say to them? I, I hope you don't use words like heterodox, right? <laughs> no, well, to be fair, the four-year-old keeps out of it for now because I've, I've started when they're five. So <laughs> at five years old, they get, a, they, they get into the issue about money. Now, a lot of it was me asking them, what do you think money is? And you know, how does it work? What, what, and, and then kind of doing that sort of annoying thing that kids do. Uh, and which is to ask a question about the answer and just keep on going and keeping on going and seeing if it got to the same sort of place that I went to and uh, by thinking about these things. More often than not, it, it does. It, these are pretty simple uh, concepts when you, once you sort of remember to forget all that you thought you knew. Uh, so, you know, I, I think a lot of the time we think of money as... As, as something like gold, you know, it's, 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 it's quantity, this physical thing, there's only a certain amount of it. And the way in which we talk about budgets uh, as adults, household budgets, that's based on the idea of a kind of a, a metalist view of world. So when we get down to, you know, a five-year-old asking them, what do you think money is? They say, right, well, it's, it's a coin, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward, it's a coin. What do you do with it? Well, I, I exchange it for other things. So how about, what about money in a bank? They go, what's a bank? And so we can then start to have a think about those sort of questions. All right, so let's dive into the, um, this issue 
We're talking about the bank of Toby and Angle, the uh, depositors <laughs> are your seven and your nine-year-old. Something that you've written about is this fact that probably almost nobody knows, which is that we really use two kinds of money throughout our lives. There's inside money and outside money. What do these two different terms mean, and how do you convey this to your kids? Okay, right, let's, let's rewind a second and then say, well, when I, when I started, sorry, when my kids became five, they started getting pocket money. They don't get it but when they're under five. When they're five, they started getting pocket money. Um, and they got pocket money in the form of outside money. That is to say they got coins. So a bunch of coins every week. And what I found was, after a while, that they just spent these coins every week, which you'd say, fair enough, it's their pocket money. But to the point whereby they felt almost annoyed that they still had some money left that they hadn't spent, so they had to find something to spend it on. I thought, this is not the lesson, really, that I wanted to to in, in, impart in, in giving people, you know, giving, giving my kids pocket money. I wanted them to think about saving and, you know, delay gratification, this kind of stuff. But I haven't really given them the instruments of doing so. And so thinking back into our adult world, what, you know, the, one of the reasons why people do save is because they're, they're saving up for something or other and they're often using interest rates. And so I started thinking about, well, what, what we might need to do is to have inside money as well as outside money. So not just coins, but also a bank. So we started up the, the Nangle Household Bank, <laughs> uh, which was a, a ledger which, and, and it, which attracts an interest rate every week. And, you know, there have been a whole bunch of, like, behavioral psychology experiments over the decades. Probably the most famous was the, the Stanford marshmallow experiment was thinking, like, do you want a marshmallow now or do you want two in 15 minutes if you wait for it? And these, these all reveal really high internal rates of return that kids have. They have massive amounts of interest rates that they're required to, to, to kind of delay consumption. So I, get, I give them 10% a week on their balances. Uh, and I, I thought, well, we'll set that into a trade and see what happens and see whether they want to spend it on sweets or whether they want to put it in on the bank and get some, some compound interest uh, with the proviso they can't spend the compound interest on sweets. And it, it seemed to work quite well. <laughs> so what exactly is the rate of saving versus their spending? Um, because as you point out, like... When you think of children, you don't necessarily think of comfort with delayed gratification. Um, so I'm curious to learn more of exactly how much they're spending versus saving. Yeah, I mean, my uh, seven-year-old and nine-year-old have got really quite different savings habits. So that <laughs> I was quite pleased that giving them this eye-wateringly high level of interest did encourage them to save for, for a starter. Uh, and also kind of, you know, I could talk to them about um, uh, payday lending having those kind of rates in reverse, if you like. So they're, they're probably a bit frightened of that in terms of borrowing. <laughs> Have you ever experimented with um, changing the interest rate that you're paying to see their reaction? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my, my, my seven-year-old got really into saving and just saved and saved and saved. <laughs> Didn't spend a single penny on anything. Uh, and uh, and I, I kind of, you know, of course I did the maths and saw that he was within about a year of owning my entire net worth, you know, really. <laughs> Uh, with the comp power of combined interest. And so, so I kind of thought it was about the time that the Swiss National Bank went into negative interest rates. So I discussed <laughs> oh this move of movement to in negative interest rates on the, on the, of the Swiss National Bank. And, and they thought that the Swiss National Bank was really mean. I mean, it was like a horrible, <laughs> horrible institution. Uh, but then also discussed that I was going to put through an interest rate change as well and put through a tiered interest rate change. Uh, to reduce savings. So if you get up to £50, you get zero on that first £50 and then it starts again. And that kind of changed my, my behavior of my nine-year-old who, who never saves beyond £50 ever. 
and my seven-year-old who just still determinedly saves a lot but still you know buys the occasional suite for now now and again but is is really kind of target saving with a dream of one day buying an ipad which may be several years away I, I, I love that uh, at least in the Bank of Nangle, there's a relationship, a clear relationship between rates and savings. Since in the real world, you know, uh, central banks are still trying to fiddle with that and get it just right. Before we move on to the next point, I still think if you can explain, maybe even perhaps for a level above seven and nine year olds, this distinction between outside money and inside money, I still think very few people would even realize that there are two different things. But as you say, you know, the two different kinds of money, coins versus the money in your bank, are as different as oil and water. Not only are they different, but they actually never even mix. Can you just explain that a little further? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it, is, it is an amazing kind of revelation once you kind of think about these things a bit. That, uh, and actually, Harjun Chang, who's a, an academic at Cambridge University, put it really nicely that banking is essentially a confidence trick, but a socially useful one, insofar as I still tend to think, even though I know this distinction, that the money in the bank is still kind of like real money. It's still notes and coins, but in a form of a bank. I know I've lent to the bank the, this money, but actually, when when the bank lends someone money, it's basically lending you a deposit. So if you're uh, XYZ bank uh, and uh, and I come to you and I say, can I borrow you know a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars? You say sure, and you create this deposit for a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars. Uh, and then I've got a I've got this deposit, which itself is simply just an entry in the bank's book. And then I've got a loan, uh, which is another entry in the bank's book. And I can spend that deposit by usually buying something from someone else who might bank either with XYZ Bank or another bank, which can then and then kind of uh, relay the payments through the interbank system. Um, so that actually by borrowing money the, the money is created out of out of nothing by the private sector banking system and most of the money in fact almost all of the money that we think we have is this uh, is this inside money that's inside the system and we all know that if everyone tried to get their money out of the bank at the same time the banks would collapse uh, there'd be a run on banks uh, but uh, one, one of the reasons is because there just isn't enough outside money. It's not because the banks have done anything foolish with it, but it, it, it simply doesn't exist to, for them to, to transfer into outside money. You mentioned um, at the beginning of our discussion that uh, thinking about money from the perspective of children and also using this inside-outside framework can help explain some of the weirder things that have been happening in terms of monetary policy over the past few years. Um, for instance, you know, when QE, when quantitative easing was first announced, we had a whole bunch of people um, talking about the inflationary effects and then when helicopter money started to be discussed, um, that inflation talk kind of went into overdrive. What can we learn uh, from the bank of uh, Toby Nangle when it comes to unconventional monetary policy? <laughs> well, I guess, you know, the way in which you know, I, I, I can think of uh, of the bank of Toby Nangle as uh, a bunch of uh, credits that my kids have. So, you know, we actually went when we started when they said, so if I give you my 50p, where are you going to put it? I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to spend it, thank you. And they're like, no, 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 but seriously, like, what, where are you going to put it? Is it in a jar or is it in your pocket? I said, no, seriously, I'm going to go and spend it. You know, you've lent me this money and I've, I've gone and spent it. Uh, but nevertheless, they have assets in the form of, of um, you know, this liability that I've incurred. 
And if we start to think about like uh, increasing the liability that I have because their assets are going up, does this become inflationary because they've got more assets which they can't translate into 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 actual spending without uh, without me being able to also access that? I mean, it 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 can get a little bit kind of tricky. Uh, so let's take it back into the real world and think about say quantitative easing and and um, uh, and, and helicopter money. I guess taking this whole idea of inside out outside money a step further, you'd say, well, you know, if outside money is basically money that governments invent to pay their bills and then like give value to you by demanding taxes uh, that are to be paid in it in punishment of administered violence, which is basically what outside money is, then you say, well, wh- why why did governments borrow money at all? What why is government debt in existence? And the the answer kind of comes back in terms of well, it comes back in order to keep uh, keep outside money, that is to say you know, government money, give it some value. It can either be taxed away to keep its stock from exploding on the upside, or it can be borrowed back from the people or other people to whom it's, it's given in the first place. And so government debt becomes an instrument of monetary sterilization uh, on the part of the government, simply in the same way that taxation is an implement of sterilization, monetary sterilization on the part of the, on the government. So we think about, okay, well, quantitative easing, what's that? That's the, the government buying back, or an agent of a government, buying back uh, these sterilization instruments, that is to say debt, in exchange for zero duration instruments, that is to say government money uh, or outside money. And when is that dangerous? Well, that can be dangerous if people start to spend it a lot, but what happens then? You can just unwind it in order to control the quantity of, 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 of outside money. But it, it isn't something which necessarily leads us down the, the, the exploding uh, so credit card. This is kind of like... Issue. This is kind of the second huge revelation already. So first we have this revelation that the money in our pocket and the money in our bank are two totally separate things. And then you have this and then also this idea that the government doesn't really borrow and it doesn't really in the way we think of borrowing and it doesn't raise taxes for the purpose that it rate that we think it raises taxes for uh, rather the taxes are raised as a um, creating value for the uh, for its currency. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's right. I think both government uh, governments both borrow and tax in order to keep its currency, give it give its currency some value and some stability. Absolutely, which which kind of gets into the distributional issues. Why would you tax rather than borrow? You know, there are all sorts of distributional issues that come off that, and all this kind of flows from just thinking about how money works, really. Let's talk about um, you talked also learned some lessons about household political economy. You wrote a uh, post on your blog about sort of what you've learned about inequality and some of Piketty's theories. What uh, ex- <laughs> what, what did you learn from doing that? Is Piketty big in the Nangle household among the five to nine year old demographic? I'm I'm curious. <laughs> Um, not in the five to nine year old, no. But but you know when 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 I started to like put through you know after the Swiss National Bank moved to to negative rates and started to change interest rates, I started you know having a chat to them about. So if I change interest rates, you know what what do you think the impact's going to be for you? And my my nine year old who target saved to a certain level uh, and then spends it on stuff uh, knows if you like her own reaction function to these things and was kind of outraged at the idea that there could be uh, higher rates when I then talked about reversing it because from her perspective, she would not be a beneficiary of this and so that would increase mm. the inequality within the Nangle children <laughs> household. Whereas my, my seven-year-old, 
he knew it would be wrong to have higher rates because he knew he'd be benefiting it, and he knew there'd also be calls on on his uh, his largesse from other parts of the Nangle family household. So he, he he does already kind of like buy the four year old toys because he realizes <laughs> he's in such a good situation that uh, he should like distribute this uh, this wealth can, across across the rest. Can of I ask you a qu- parenting question? So I have a one year old daughter. So I won't. I'm not going to be doing any of this, these experiments for a few years yet. But do you ever worry that your kids are just going to be like so much more, so much smarter and savvier than all the other kids in school, and that they're just oh going to be my sort of like, god, no, like that no, is I mean, such clearly a new they're going question. to be like clearly like those kids that your kids are just going to be like running circles around all the other uh, kids in school. Like, do you worry they're just going to be you know it's almost almost too too uh, too smart for their own good? I honestly say I, 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 that, that doesn't keep me awake at night. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question. You, you kind of started to get to it with the inequality stuff, but um, you know we're clearly talking about young children and young children's attitudes towards basic interest rates. Um, but you've pointed out more than once that people's um, attitude to rates tends to change depending on what age they are. So demographics ends up being a really, really big factor in all of this that doesn't necessarily get the attention it might deserve. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. In fact, you know, <laughs> after after a couple of years of, of experimenting with, with my children uh, and interest rates and, and banks and the like and thinking about how their reaction functions change as savers and the like and thinking about that into the real world, there actually tend to be some some potentially really quite big research questions that aren't addressed. Uh, that is to say, uh, most economic frameworks or models used by central banks, quite rightly uh, for many years, have, have assumed that there is a negative relationship between you know uh, rates and spending. So higher rates would discourage borrowing and encourage saving. But there are there are big cohorts who don't really have the access to. To, to borrow at those rates. Uh, so they can't borrow more when it's lower and, and, and less when it's higher. Now, some of that are financially excluded people, so uh, which, which within the economic sense uh, tend to be you know, relatively marginal. But then increasingly, uh, you have demography playing a part, as you say, Tracy. So uh, with a whole bunch of people getting older, how do you debt finance retirement? You know, I mean, you're, you're saving specifically in order to spend when you're in retirement. Or uh, in the UK context, where there have been caps put on uh, household borrowing rates as a multiples of of, of income, you increasingly have to save up a huge proportion of your disposable income to get a deposit for a property. So I I saw something out by Residential Analysts uh, Limited, which was saying that, you know, the average deposit for first-time buyer in, uh, in London is now 150% of salary, whereas you know 20 years ago it was about 10% of salary. So you have to save up all this amount. And so you may be, because you're target saving for either retirement or property purchase, um, th- then, then the, the relationship for big cohorts of the population starts to flip and they become more like my kids. This, uh, rather than sort of traditional actors in the economic sense. This point, and you've talked about, you've been writing about this recently, strikes me as incredibly important and potentially significant for understanding sort of uh, things that have gone on in major developed economies over the last few years. I mean, this idea, if you're, you know, as you say, the traditional way of talking about it, low rates, that encourages you to save less and to spend more and boost the economy. But on the flip side, if you're, say, 50 years old and you want to retire sometime in the next 10 to 15 years, 
and you want to have a certain amount of money to be able to draw on every year during your retirement, low rates actually encourage forces you essentially is what you're saying to put more in retirement because if you're getting paid less on your investment assets you basically have to compensate for that by socking away each more it seems like a huge deal in terms of thinking about what we've seen i i think that potentially it's quite big but at the same time it's important not to overstate the fact that actually low rates do mean that um businesses uh, can often access mm. finance more cheaply and they might be able to employ more unemployed people than they would otherwise, right. you know, do. So there, you know, there are swings and roundabouts here. I I did have a chat with uh, some folk uh, just to kind of clarify that central banks do think about things as a kind of an infinitely lived um, agent who can, you know, <laughs> borrow and save at the similar kind of rate, rather than necessarily accounting for the humps in demography or macroprudential <laughs> changes. So so maybe there's something in that, but uh, it's it's all a little bit speculative. And as I say, it's a sort of thing which would, I think, be int- uh, deliver interesting research questions that people can do some proper data analysis on. But as it is, it just feels intuitively important, as you say, I agree with you. Toby, can we put you on the spot and can we ask you to sort of bring all this together um, you know, your theory of inside and outside money, the bank of Toby Nangle within your household, your children's reaction to interest rates, and give us your verdict on the success of low rates and unconventional monetary policy over the past uh, six or seven years. Ooh. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I would say that uh, my verdict on unconventional policy rates would be that, uh, or, or rather unconventional monetary policy, was that you know QE1 when it came out was absolutely, absolutely needed. It was a, a acute liquidity crisis that faced global financial cr- uh, system. And so uh, allowing there to be sufficient liquidity in the system so that the the, the, so that, if you like, the inside money banking system didn't just fall apart and everything that we think of as money just disappear. That was really important. Once we went on to QE2, QE3 and the like, then those, if, uh, that, that seemed to be more about what economists would call the portfolio balance effect. That is to say, uh, targeting high levels of asset prices and trying to force people away from uh, certain types of assets into other types of assets, and I think the results in that are, are, are pretty are pretty mixed. Uh, all the work seems to suggest that it was only successful in part, and I think that you know some of the some of the stuff I've looked at with my kids and uh, and, and demography more widely uh, would suggest that for any kind of target savers, then uh, then then long rates or rather interest rates start to look like what's thought of uh, as a gif in good. That is to say, the higher uh, things mm-hmm. go in price, the more you need of it, which would be we're saying the lower rates, the, the, more, the more you have to save. But then in the background to all that, you've got this kind of secularly falling real rate, which seems to equate with inflation. And, uh, and, and I'd put that uh, more down to some, some issues with globalization rather than anything else that's going on in the world. So, I, and I think that bit's turning. All right, final question, and then we have to wrap up. Are you planning any more experiments or potential policy innovations that we should be watching for at the uh, Bank of Nangle? What, <laughs> what's what's on the roadmap? <laughs> I haven't got anything. Uh, I haven't got anything planned. But if anyone's got any good ideas, uh, which won't upset them too much, uh, then please uh, please tweet them to me at Toby underscore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on that note. You should uh, follow Toby Nangle at, at Toby underscore N, and you should read 
all about his experiments at his blog, principlesandinterest.wordpress.com. Toby Nangle, Global Co-Head of Asset Allocation at Columbia Threadneedle Asset Management. Absolutely great to talk to you and have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, Tracy, uh, did that lift your mood and uh, break the streak of negative episodes that we've had sufficiently? Uh, yeah, it did. It made me laugh pretty hard, um, particularly the bit where you uh, subconsciously uh, let people know that you worry that your child is going to be too smart. I enjoyed no, that. No, I'm not worried about that. But it, when I started hearing <laughs> these things, I was like, oh, God, these kids are going to be like way more savvy than anyone they go to school <laughs> with. But no, I swear I never uh, that it didn't cross my mind. Okay. On a serious note, though, I mean, I thought that was a really, really fun framing of what can be a quite geeky topic that we tend to discuss quite a lot on the show, which is what is money? Yeah, no, I I totally agree, and it's um, yeah, no, I I I love all those points, and we we as you say, we've hit them in different aspects before, and we'll probably uh, talk about them again. About what really is the banking system? Where do where does money come from? Why do we have taxes and stuff like that? But I think that really is is sort of great framing that makes a lot of these things that are sort of theoretical yeah. and abstract very concrete. Yeah, and talking about it through the eyes of kids kind of brings home the behavioral aspect of interest rates and money. Like, you know, when people talk about negative rates, there's just an emotion involved there. There's right. kind of a sense of unfairness, and that really comes through when you're talking about seven- or nine-year-olds, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, you sort of have this thing in the real world where central banks might cut rates to zero or negative, mm. and then people complain, and then economists say, oh, but you really shouldn't complain because it's going to stimulate borrowing right. and that'll stimulate consumption. But that doesn't change the fact that still it upsets people in the real world, and you can't just abstract it away by saying it's irrational because ultimately the economy is just uh, full of people. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, it runs on what people do, right? Uh, yeah, and I am going to. Uh, I am inspired to do oh, some no. of these own, uh, <laughs> financial experiments when my own uh, kids get. Okay. Uh, I like that idea of waiting until they're five, though. All right, so let's see. In four years, we'll be doing an odd lots episode about introducing your daughter to the concept of money, right? Exactly. Follow up episode. I look forward to that. All right, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you can follow Toby, as we mentioned, on Twitter at Toby underscore N. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.